Can uh, you change the lights so I can see those folks? And, uh, yeah, the ones on me down, the ones on them higher. Yes, thank you. I received a word yesterday that maybe I could be a little help at this hour this morning. This has happened to me before. One time, a man said to me in the Philippines, we're going to go out. We went out someplace in the jungle, a nice little church. I thought, oh, this would be nice, attend their service. And then they look at me, okay, you're on. <laughs> oh, I'm the speaker. Well, I have a solution for that. I got up there and I said, you know, God made this world and man sinned. And I'm going to tell you what he's done about it. So we got right to work to give the gospel. I went into another church. These things happened to me in the Philippines. I got there late. We had to travel so far. The service had begun. Deacon comes to me and he leans over me. He says, uh, we need you to give the sermon. <laughs> oh, well, the next day I was uh, starting Hebrews chapter 1, my series on in that book, in a seminary in Manila, and uh, I thought, okay, we'll just start, Hebrews chapter one. So what I do in a situation like this is take something I'm familiar with, something I've enjoyed, something I've chewed on and meditated on, and for me, it was the book of Isaiah again, so I thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to teach Isaiah 53. And uh, before I do, we'll pray. Father in heaven, you're the one who has given through your Holy Spirit these words to this holy prophet of yours 700 years before Christ. And now we pray that your eternal word, always true and always relevant, may be a blessing to all who come and listen in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Isaiah 53 is one of the most familiar texts in the Bible, one of the most familiar chapters. The problem with it is it uh, doesn't begin in Isaiah 53, verse 1. Somebody, a German monk who was taking a trip on a carriage down to Rome many years ago, decided to, you know, divide up the Bible in chapters and verses. And this time he made a bad mistake because this is a servant song and it begins in chapter 52, verse 13. And you put it all together, it has five stanzas. So you can really tell how this sermon is going because stanza one, stanza two, but you can't leave out stanza one because there it is the father speaking about his servant who is his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then pretty soon someone else is speaking. Well, maybe even the prophet has the word, but before you're done, the father takes it and he, he brags, he boasts, he's happy about the work of his son, 
the Lord Jesus. So we'll begin chapter 52, verse 13, stanza 1. The Father speaking said, Behold, uh, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The servant is Christ. We're told this because the one who is high and lifted up is the Lord. In chapter 6, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Did you hear the words? High and lifted up. These words are now applied to Christ. And John chapter 12 tells us that uh, what Isaiah saw in chapter 6 was he saw the glory of Christ. There's no doubt who we're talking about. This servant song is the fourth of four, and the other three are predictions of Christ. In the first one, the Father speaks of him, and this one, the Father speaks of him. In the two in the middle, the Lord Jesus is speaking for himself. But what does God say? My servant shall deal wisely. I think in modern English, we put it like this. My servant knows what he's doing, and he knows how to get this job finished. He knows what has to be done, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. Oh, great. The next verse in Isaiah 52. I'll read it. And many were astonished at you. His appearance, the servants, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You go to one high and exalted and lifted up and one so degraded that to your eyes you can hardly tell that this is human our Lord Jesus, when he was crucified, had a crown of thorns. You cut into the skull and you're going to get bleeding. And when he was scourged, that is with a whip before he was crucified, the Bible says his, his back looked like a plowed field. We're talking blood, folks. There's a lot of it coming down and drying and mangled in his beard and mangled in his hair. No wonder Isaiah says, you can't really be sure that that's human. He looks so awful. You have come in two verses to the great exaltation of Christ, the Son of God. You have come to the terrible humiliation of Jesus, the Son of God. Or remember, he's acting wisely and he knows what he's doing. And it was necessary for him to do that if you and I are going to be saved. And the word will spread that what he has done, I read in the next verse, so shall he sprinkle, that's the language of a priest, the priest may sprinkle blood or, or sprinkle ceremonially to cleanse. What's he going to sprinkle? This one who looks like uh, this is the end of him. We'll never see that guy again. This one shall sprinkle many nations. Now we're talking a multitude of people. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that 
which has not been told them. What did this man who was God do? They had to find out. That which they have not heard, they come to a point where you say, that which they have not heard, they understand. So this was wonderful. Many. That word many comes up in this particular servant song. The Bible tells us that there, are, there will be a multitude of believers, a number so great that no man can number. When they got the angels, they said 10,000 times 10,000, that's only 100 million. But when you get to the number of redeemed human beings, because in Greek they don't have enough big numbers to go around. They don't have a number for a million or a billion. And so they multiply their big numbers. But when you get to human beings, it is a number that no man can number from every tribe and family and people and nation. And that is already underway, but it is not yet finished. There are many more to come, many nations. I've read it in the Bible. That means it's true. Stanza two. Now it has changed. The Father is not the one speaking. You have the people of God speaking. And uh, to your shock, it's the people of God speaking in unbelief. I mean, remember this uh, one who was so degraded he didn't have human semblance? And this message, uh, someday the kings of the earth will understand. But right now, in Isaiah 53, verse 1, at the time that the Lord Jesus was here and made his sacrifice, the people of Israel could say, this is true, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, you've got to get the sense of the answer is and nobody's believed. The New Testament quotes that verse and uses it, uses it that way. Who has believed? To whom is the arm of the Lord? That's a name for God. The arm of the Lord is Jesus Christ. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, we don't know who he is. They keep speaking in their unbelief. For he grew up before him like a young plant, not like a redwood cedar, and like a root out of dry ground. That's not very promising. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You show somebody this man and you say, you know, this is the Lord God, the second person of the Trinity who is manifested in human flesh. And somebody might answer, you kidding? They were not impressed with what they saw. Well, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Are not interested. And that was the way the Lord Jesus from heaven was treated amongst his own. For he came 
unto his own, and his own received him not. Isaiah's not done. Now these people, speaking as unbelievers say about Jesus, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. There was no delight in Christ. I gave you what the people of God said. You can tell it's plural, we and our. And now the people of God speak. They've, they've come to see the truth. They come to believe. And they say, in modern English, how could we have ever gotten it so wrong? You want to know who he really was? And so that's the change in stanza three. Part of my motive in giving this sermon is, if I can excite you about this particular text of scripture so that you read it over and over again, you'll get more blessed then than you're getting now. Stanza three, they said, surely he has borne our griefs and that's quite a change from what they said before. He was despised, he was rejected, he's a root out of the dry ground. Somebody just shake their head and say, this is going nowhere. God loves to work out of weakness. He loves to work out of when we may be persecuted, because I think that's coming in our country, and somehow to be more effective. When I was a teenager, I heard about a certain mission in Africa, and when they, uh, the Italians uh, attacked Africa, they bombed Ethiopia, uh, this Mussolini was a monster, and he wanted to show his great power, yeah, yeah, have a plane go over and drop bombs on people with swords. Oh, what a brave man you are, Mr. Mussolini. But the missionaries had to leave, and they left behind the church that had very few converts. And when the Italians were driven out of there, and the war was over in that part of Africa, and they went back, and they found thousands and thousands of people who had come to believe. God turned a time of persecution into, by his Holy Spirit, the strength of the, as the people of God spread the gospel. We have it again in stanza number three. Because they say, they sing a different tune. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We didn't know how to interpret him. Look what he was doing. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We thought this man of God was just getting what he deserved. That sentence finishes this way. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They're reflecting back to their old attitude. I, it means this, I'll read it again. 
Yet we at one time esteemed Jesus Christ as stricken by God, smitten by God, and afflicted by God. And what's behind that is this poor guy was just getting what he deserved. They were thinking karma. One of my Buddhist friends said to me, what comes around goes around. That there's that sense. Well, he only got what he deserved. One of the great problems of reincarnation is that people see somebody in a terrible situation and they can proudly say, <laughs> he got it coming. There's very little inclination to help and support the poor and the downtrodden because everything bad that happens to them, to them it's all their fault anyway. And this is the kind of reasoning that people once had of Jesus. You look at him hanging on the cross. I think you heard the verse from me. And he who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Surely you're not going to believe it. That guy, until we found out that surely he has borne our griefs, not his, and carried our sorrows, not his, because you dying for our sins, not his. And so the light has come on. What do we have here? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought, brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. My mother made me uh, memorize that, in fact, the whole chapter, in the King James Version. Before I was born, an old Plymouth Brethren preacher said to my father, well, did you get what you were looking for in your wedding shower? My father said, uh, we thought it'd be kind of nice if we had a scripture text. Next thing you knew, the preacher was up on a chair measuring tacking or nailed in, and hung there a text that said, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That lovely verse. Quite a privilege to grow up as a child and see that verse on the wall every day. Let me give it to you again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And there you have it. The doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. How can you be saved? by simply believing in the one who took your place. And you bow and you say, oh Lord, you took what I deserved. On Friday, he got what we deserved. On Sunday, in his resurrection, God the Father gave him what he deserved. So now you have 700 years before Jesus appeared on earth, you have an interpretation for you, a doctrinal explanation of the meaning of the atonement. Beautiful. 
This is the most detailed place in the Old Testament that gives this. And if I may surprise you, because I like to surprise you, if you read all four Gospels, you will not find a more detailed explanation of the death of Christ than the one that was given 700 years earlier. If you go beyond the Gospels into the epistles, that's different. You're going to get a whole lot more. One more. Last verse in stanza three. All we like sheep have gone astray. That, that's good. That's confession of sin. We can't believe unless we repent. You, you get the flavor of repentance in here. I'm ashamed to say to you that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned. You can stick the word sinfully in if you wish. We have turned every one of us to his own way. Some think that's the definition of freedom. Just go do it, whatever's on your mind, whatever you feel. And the Bible uh, takes another look at that. Oh yeah, everyone has turned to his own way, which is a sinful thing to do. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Transgression means we've gone against his law. Iniquity means the heinousness of our sin, the ugliness of it. And you and I are saved because God took what our sin deserved and put it on him and took the righteousness that was naturally his and which is foreign to us and put it on our record so that he calls us righteous. And because he died for our sins, he calls us forgiven. This, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. Well, now we move from the abstract explanation of the cross in stanza four to the historical development of what actually happened that day, that time. It says in verse 7, he was oppressed. I certainly was. I mean, captured, dragged off to the high priest, dragged off to Pilate, sent up to Herod, back to Pilate. They wouldn't quit. You know, who shall I, it's our custom to release to you one on this feast day and who shall you take? Well, take Barabbas. What about Jesus? Crucify him. Yes, he was oppressed. And, uh, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Did Jesus resist? Did Jesus say, this is not fair? Or what that man said about me is not true? None of that. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Jesus, who could have called for ten legions of angels to come to his defense, would not do it. He came to do his Father's will. He came to take 
your place. He came to suffer our hell so that we might have his heaven. Thank the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. And so like a sheep before his shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth in self-defense. By oppression, this, this is the legal turnings of the Roman justice system, wanted to be such a wonderful system. Look what it did to the Son of God. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Okay, take him out. Take him to the place called Golgotha. Kill him. Crucify him. And as for his generation, which does not mean his children, but the generation he lived in, as for his contemporaries, uh, no one considered, it didn't sink in, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for what reason? For the transgression of my people. I might have gone by that too fast. I'd like to read that verse again. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, the people who lived when he did, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? The expected answer is nobody. Even his disciples didn't know what was going on. But the history, here's a detail in Isaiah that must have driven some of God's people nuts to try to understand this verse for 700 years. You know, friends, we have to admit that sometimes we understand a prophecy better when it's fulfilled than when all we have is the word to tell us what's going to happen. But it says this, and they made his grave with the wicked. Okay. Two criminals crucified, one on either side. Oh, we can see that. And with the rich man in his death. How'd that get in there and what does it mean? For 700 years they didn't know. But the Sanhedrin moved to have Jesus killed. But there were two men on that Sanhedrin who said to themselves, and I guess to each other, that's it. I'm not going along with this. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and they said, may we have the body. If they hadn't, the body of Jesus would have been taken to the continuously burning uh, dump outside Jerusalem and would have been thrown on the pile. And this man, Joseph, was a rich man. He had a tomb that nobody had ever lain in, probably being saved for himself. Pilate granted them their request, and the body of Jesus was properly cared for with a shroud, with the spices, enough to get us through today because the Sabbath is upon us. And so we read, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he'd done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now we come to stanza five, the longest of the five, where you get a little more explanation. You know, when God explains that something, 
something to you, what you should do is say, thank you. I, I wouldn't have understood unless you'd spelled this out for me. This is a hard thing to understand that the Son of God would be so greatly humiliated. Did it have to go that way? Theologically, we say the justice of God can never be set aside. God is just, he cannot be unjust, he cannot let things go. But one thing he can do, in his grace, he can insert his kindness to find a remedy for the guilty. And so in the justice of God, we're all condemned, condemned as early as the sin of Adam before you were ever born. But in the grace of God, the Savior has been sent to step in for you. When I was a boy, I heard a story that has affected me ever since. You know, old-fashioned schools, uh, they, they were quick to get out a whipping. And anybody here ever get strapped in school? Hey, put up your hand. I want to see how many of you. Oh, shame. You should go back and live your life over. You're missing something. Like the guy when I was in grade seven and up in front, the teacher was huffing and puffing and giving him a strapping. And when she was done, he looked at her and said, are you tired? <laughs> well, she won that one. She said no and gave him some more. Well, in this school, they, had, uh, they agreed to some rules. You mustn't steal. If you steal, you'll get uh, a whipping. And this little boy whose bones were showing from a very poor family and rather slight, and he was hungry, and he stole a boy's lunch. It was discovered. It came out, and here he is, guilty, and the teacher looked at, we're going to whip this little guy? There's not much there. But we said this was what we would do. Got ready to whip him. And the boy from whom the lunch was stolen stepped up, took off his shirt, leaned over the boy and said, okay, give it to him by giving it to me. That's what Jesus did for us. Willingly took our place. But I'm babbling on here, and it's time to read what the Lord actually said. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. If you're surprised, that is what it said. God was exacting on Jesus his justice against us. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul, I think that means Jesus' soul, makes an offering for guilt, an offering to God. Jesus, as a result, shall see his offspring. The result, here they are. All of you who believe in Jesus, you're the offspring that comes to him because of his intervention for your salvation. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
Now, verse 8 said he's cut off from the land of the living, and verse 10 is telling us he's alive again. So Isaiah 53 gives us the death and the resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And God is delighted that you should have eternal life because of what his son did for you. Uh, verse 11. <clears throat> Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. After the crucifixion, Jesus looks back <clears throat> and aware of your salvation, he says, I'm happy I did it. I did the right thing. Remember, the father said at the beginning, my servant shall deal wisely. And now the results are coming in of the grace of God. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's a title for Christ, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's hard when we're all to memorize verses. So I would urge you, anyway, to take verse 11 and go over and over it and chew on it. Out of the anguish of his soul and his sufferings under the justice of God, he shall look back when it is finished, and Jesus will be satisfied. And the Father is boasting about him by his knowledge, since he knew what to do and did it. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Are you righteous and accepted by God as one of his children? If you believed in Jesus Christ, rip, off came the page of your sin. It's nailed to the cross and is against you no more because there on the cross it was paid. And since you're required to have righteousness, and since you're represented by the Lord Jesus, his righteousness becomes yours just as surely as your sin became his. He didn't do our sin, and we didn't do his righteousness. But it's a wonderful exchange at the heart of the gospel. Therefore, and now we have a translation problem, so I'll give you what I think is the better translation, and a funny thing. <laughs> it's a funny thing. The only version, translation of the Bible that I know that does this is the Jerusalem Bible produced by Roman Catholic scholars. And the point is this. I will assign unto him the many. He died for the many. I assign unto him the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is victory language. Uh, why should he have the many? They're his because he died for them. Jesus died for you, then you belong to him. You are his possession. And 
What shall you enjoy if you belong to him? Everything he deserves and receives from his father, that's his inheritance. His inheritance becomes your inheritance when you are in Christ. And so he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. Rejoice in this. All week you should run these verses through your mind. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Just before Jesus died, according to Luke chapter 22, Jesus quoted some of verse 12 as an explanation of what he was up to by going to the cross. These words actually appeared on the lips of Jesus and were heard by his disciples. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. That may be where the quotation begins. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Brothers and sisters, you have a wonderful Savior. Let us thank him. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, but that you sent your Holy Son who had no sin, that he might die for us and we might have his righteousness. We thank you for this old text that tells us about it before it happened. In Jesus' name, amen.